back to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Now for a few moments, I want to address the question, are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of Jesus? In the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 38, and this will be our main text. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now let's back up again and look at verse 36 and 37 again. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Father, for a few moments as we look into this scripture, we pray you would give us all ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly. Father, help me to clarify anything that is complex More than anything else, help us to magnify your Son before all of our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Now, it's obvious that Jesus is providing us with a warning. This admonition is designed to make us think about what is important in this world. And I think when he makes this particular point with his disciples by asking two questions. He's trying to drive it home. There should be nothing and no one more important than him. Note the question. What's the use of gaining the world and losing your soul? Business people will tell you that just about everybody has a number. That is to say there's a price or number at which they'll give in or surrender. You know, you have somebody with a house and they'll say to you, if somebody came up to me and offered me a million dollars for my house, I'd sell it in a heartbeat. Business people think everybody has a number. I want you to understand the devil thinks the same way. He believes there's a place in your life, there's a point in the path on which you're traveling That he could bring something that you want and you would exchange it in order to receive it. You give up eternal life. You compromise every virtue that you possess in order to achieve this happiness. Now we see the model in the way the devil came to Jesus and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you just bow down and worship me. And People have been doing that for generations. Devil offers them a lady. The devil offers them some money. The devil offers them a piece of real estate. And if it means they can receive a bit of happiness, they'll turn over their most precious things in life. And a whole lot of people have compromised their values because of what they thought they were going to receive in return. Now, when we look at verse 38, the word whosoever is big enough to be inclusive of all of us. 
It doesn't matter if you're short or tall, big or small, fat or skinny, rich or poor, strong or weak. Whoever is ashamed of him and his words, that becomes a troublesome predicament here. But it's interesting, though, that when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he makes it very plain that this word is inescapable. It doesn't matter if somebody is in the jungles of Brazil or the mountains of Tibet. We are all having to come to grips with a choice that we have to make when we come in contact with Jesus or information about him. How are you going to conduct yourself? What kind of behavior are you going to have in this particular world? And notice the description that he provides. He said this adulterous and sinful generation. Now, Why the word adulterous? Because when we think about the sanctity of marriage, we think about a covenant and we think about fidelity and loyalty. But the scripture in speaking of adultery gives us all kinds of images that we could use that would also describe the generation in which Jesus was living. Hollywood likes all kinds of productions about lustful episodes in scripture. They make movies about Solomon, about King David, Samson, and Delilah. But why have they neglected to study the book of Hosea? Here's a man that had to illustrate through his life the adulteries of the nation of Israel. And I know it's connected with Israel and their adultery because in Hosea 3 verse 1, the Lord said to Hosea, go love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So God saw that the children of Israel had turned from truth, had deviated from the perfection of God's word and had chased after other faiths and other religions. And because of this swerve toward wickedness, God said to a holy man of God, I want you to illustrate their adultery through a command that I'm giving to you. Jose, I want you to go and I want you to find a woman who is involved with whoredoms, who's the child of whoredoms, and I want you to love that woman. God's trying to show that love covers a multitude of sins. Can you imagine the prophet of God going down into a red light district, finding a lady who's been with so many men, she probably doesn't even remember who they are. But yet, What's bad about it is that there was a society in which the woman could ply her trade. There were men that would even go to her home or wherever she labored and pay for it. But yet Hosea, in obedience to the command of God, he goes and he finds this woman. And as it says in chapter one, he took Gomer, that was her name, the daughter of Diblium, and they set up house. She began to have children. She had at least three, and every child was named after Israel's backslidden condition. But at some point, Gomer began to think about where she once was. 
I mean, here she is now. She's at home. She's had to learn how to be a mom. She's got to nurse kids. She's got to keep house. She's got to hear about God, probably has to make her way to the temple. But in the depths of her heart, there's still this yearning and craving and this passion, all these appetites for these former lovers and this embrace that they gave her. And so I'm sure that in the middle of the night, she'd look over there at the snoring prophet and she'd think about what she once had. Why am I locked into this relationship with one man? Well, there was a time in my life where I could have <clears throat> many men. And this lady, she ups one day and takes off and leaves. And chapter 2 goes into explaining how Israel's adulterous affairs around that nation are caricatured in this woman Gomer's activity in that country. So in chapter 3, God speaks to Hosea. He said, now look, I want you to do this again. Go and love a woman. That's involved with adultery. He knew exactly where to go. He knew where his wife was. The Bible says in chapter 3, he went down and bought her for 15 pieces of silver and some barley. And he brought that woman back home. And all God was trying to show was that Israel had broken my heart over and over again. So think of Jesus now when he says about this adulterous generation. He's speaking of a culture that is totally turned away from God. He said a sinful generation. Let's think of Joel now. Joel was a prophet that spoke to the agricultural people and let them know there's a reason our fields are barren, why our fruit trees are no longer any good. The palmer worm and the locusts, Canker worm have come, and what one insect didn't devour, the other insect came and devoured. And what was left of those fruitless trees and vines, the caterpillar came and devoured what was left. It's like they raped the land because of the iniquity of the children of Israel. But yet Joel had prophesied that if you return to God and begin to think about God and his word and what the priests were supposed to teach, He said God would cause the heavens to bring forth rain. The grounds would become fruitful all over again. It was a sinful generation. That's why the outpouring of the Holy Ghost was essential to Joel's message. And it's in this particular culture, one that is sinful and one that is adulterous, that Jesus said to his disciples, whoever is ashamed of me and my words is going to be in trouble. Now let's remember then, he said, ashamed of me. I wonder how many people there are in this nation that are ashamed of Jesus. Why would he tell his disciples, whoever is ashamed of me? Jesus knew that his person and his life and his career was essential to the life that the disciples were going to have to live. And I think it was Nicodemus, and it was Joseph of Arimathea who give us a beautiful image of this. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at nighttime. But in chapter 7, again, it says, he came at night. But then in chapter 19, verse 39, it tells us Nicodemus was there to help take the body down off the cross. He brought the spices. But Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was his friend. In John 19, verse 38, it says, He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I wonder how many of us in here tonight are afraid of Jesus or ashamed of Jesus, I should say. Are you the kind of person that when you're in mixed company or amongst certain people in your family or on your job, do you become a chameleon and act like you don't know God? I've met people that have they not told me, told me later that they had been to church, I would have never known they'd ever darkened the door of a church because their lifestyle and their conversation never betrayed it. Are you ashamed of Jesus? This is what we have here. Why would anybody allow the peer pressure of their people in their generation to so influence them that they would not want to be vocal. That's how Joseph was. Nobody wanted to get put out of synagogue. Nobody wanted to be ostracized. Who wants to be shunned by the influential people of society? Who wants to be talked about in a very small village? And so he was secretly a disciple, but now Jesus is dead and he's there now to take him off the cross. He's willing to stand by Jesus in death, but he needed somebody to stand by him when he was alive. And we know he's alive again. Are we ashamed of him today? The Bible says here, ashamed of me and my words. Now, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So that tells me that this book, this Bible, these gospels contain the words of the Lord. If you've got a red letter edition, they're written in red for you. And you can see exactly what he said. So much of it came out of the Old Testament. But look at the number of people today that are ashamed of what Jesus has said in the scripture. And they won't stand by it. The culture has shifted to the degree that where people once openly believed in Christ and affirmed their faith publicly, now the Christians have been chased back into the closet. Every kind of iniquity you can think of has come out of the closet and the Christians are on their heels. I watch them on these talk shows from time to time if I'm in some store or something and it's on and I'll stand there and look and they'll have all these people that are pagan and then there's supposedly one person there or two on the panel that are Christian or conservative. But you watch if they quote a Bible scripture, then that one who's supposed to be conservative or Christian is always backtracking, trying to qualify what the Bible means because they don't want to be associated with anybody that literally believes the book. That Bible says that, have you not read that in the beginning God made a male and female? But somebody will quote that and they'll say, but, but in ancient times, they didn't have the understanding that we have now about marriage. And all of this comes in because of the great deception. I watch when they talk about creation. They're ashamed of the first 12 chapters of Genesis. They don't like the idea that God made the heavens and the earth. They don't like the idea that there ever were two people that God began this race of human humans with. They don't like the idea that one day there was a flood because of man's sin. They hate the idea that the world was divided up and the languages were severed by the power of God. And they certainly don't like the idea that God chose one man. And from that man created a family. 
from that family made a tribe, from that tribe made a nation that became special to the Lord. So over and over again, we're watching the confusion that is coming to the earth because of a misunderstanding of the book of Genesis. I hear people all the time. They'll say things like this. They say, you know that uh, mankind has been here on earth for about 400 million years. Well, you know, don't really make me much of a difference. I, I don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden or anything like that. But I'll usually ask a question like this when they say that. Well, I'm curious, how do you know it was 400 million and not 399 million years that mankind has been on the earth? Well, you know, the science says, and we just have to make an educated guess. I say, well, why don't you just go ahead and say you don't know? And since you don't know, be honest about it instead of trying to use the word science. I mean, we hear people all the time talk about the earth going to burn up. I mean, just global warming. That's all I heard in high school years ago. This thing is just getting hotter and hotter. And then when they realize it's not getting hotter and hotter, then they just say it's climate change all over the place. So, I mean, just variations and all of that. Well, as far as I can understand from Genesis, the Lord said, as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. If you're going to have seed time and harvest, you've got to have seasons. He's given us spring, summer, fall, and winter. The climate changes all the time. And for people who are saying that the earth is getting warmer, the earth is getting colder, the only thing I can say is Colossians teaches us that all things are held together by the word of his power. It is not going to fall apart just because some folks that are over in New York are telling everybody the world's going to blow up and no longer exist by 2029 or something. If the scripture is clear, let's not be ashamed of the words of God and stand by the words of God when they speak explicitly and they speak clearly. Jesus said, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of when I come. Now, I find it interesting that he would use the word ashamed. The reason that is interesting to me is because in an adulterous and sinful generation, You've had people turn from the truth to embrace what is false. When that occurs, that means that true faith and true religion has to be discarded. If I believe that Jesus is the son of God, born of a virgin, lived without sin, died on the cross for my sins, raised from the dead and went to heaven. And somebody else over here doesn't believe that. And they say, well, we've got to be able to to, to reconcile these views in order for us to live together in tolerance. Then I realized that in order for me to accept the views over here, I've got to compromise the truth of God. So in the end, what I have is something that is tolerable, but not truthful. It's not the word of God. And if we understand that, then we can see what's taking place today Every time you have a politician or some kind of a reporter or an actor or an actress try to explain to us what Christianity is supposed to be. 
I had a friend of mine send me a link yesterday, good preacher friend. He said, Daryl, look at this and tell me what you think. So I looked at it this afternoon, let Tiffany listen to some of this. I said, this is a mess. This is an absolute mess. Here are popular contemporary singers misleading multitudes of people. They had one little gal who's had, I don't know how many number one hits in the last two years or so. And they asked her, what do you, what are your views about homosexuality? She said, well, I just don't believe that I know enough about that to even understand it. But for all of you that read the Bible, if you ever can figure it out, please just let me. They had somebody else who was a so-called Christian rapper, one of the most popular Christian rappers today. And they asked him about homosexuality. He said, well, look, my brother is gay. I just don't think we ought to come to it from the aspect of condemnation. If you approach it in a negative way, then how are we ever supposed to know the truth? I'm just a learner. I'm reading the Bible like everybody else. Who really knows what is God's will or God's mind? And I thought to myself, what in the world was Moses writing about? What is Paul talking about? But with millions of fans that are listening to these people, we have a a generation of young people and elderly people that have been lulled to sleep so that they don't even realize they're not awake and they themselves are ashamed of him and his words. The book is holy. The book is inspired. The book is something that we should stand by and be confident and bold in our witness when people are talking to us. Are you ashamed of Jesus? What are you going to do? What will you say when your family members are upset with you because of the stance you've taken concerning the word of God? I think at far too many family reunions, we put a muzzle on our mouths. I think at far too many occasions, public events, when people are talking and then they're kind enough to say, well, what do you think? What's your opinion? I think far too many cases we skip over that and we don't even tell people what we believe. But we must tell people what we believe. Because if we're ashamed of him, the scripture says he'll be the same way when it comes to us. So this adultery and this sin in the generation has produced a shameful culture and Christians are constantly being mocked. How can you be so narrow minded? How can you be so provincial? Are you really trying to tell me that in this Hollywood setting that God would be displeased with the lifestyle that I live? I mean, you flip that television on and I mean, you got people calling one another B's and H's and every other kind of thing. And yet banning of the words that people are using. And I cannot for the life of me understand why anybody on a television program would call one man or another man or another woman or to another woman, a a female dog. But yet this culture says that is permissible, but you cannot say anything about the book. You say anything about the Bible, and they say you've lost your mind. I'm telling you, we have a time frame presently where the words of Christ and the person of Christ is despised. So nobody wants to deal with what's right or what's wrong. We don't want to deal with what's good or what's bad. We created a culture in which everybody has to be entirely equal, and we wonder why the the people's actions... Not as despised as they should be sometimes. You know, we, we were talking with a, a lady from one of the other churches. And uh, 
We were talking about suicide. Just why is it in America amongst our young people and young adults, suicide is so great. But, you know, we have a culture where, you know, nobody can be allowed to feel bad. Shame, guilt, condemnation, that kind of a thing. Everybody's got to get a ribbon. Everybody's got to get a trophy. And everybody's got to come across the platform and receive something so that nobody will feel bad in their personality because then they're going to be unhappy. Mom and dad don't want his kids to, to be unhappy. But, you, you know, I, I, I like this, this idea that, you know, just give everybody whatever they want. I guess it would have worked for me when I was in school back when we had those teachers that uh, would grade on the curve. You know, people like me, we love that. You know, we, we, we love that. Now, somebody like my wife, who was a straight-A student, she, I mean, she didn't even smell a B in her lifetime, hardly. And, and I hardly ever smelled an A, you know, but she, she, she would, she'd get good grades, and them teachers would say something like this in that classroom. Say, if, um, if, if we take all of the, the grades from this test, and we're going to use the ones with the highest highest averages, and we're just going to kind of use that to set the parameters for what everybody's grade in the rest of the class is going to be. So, of course, uh, people like me and then a handful of other people who who were down here on the lower scale didn't so much care about school as as much as some other people. If, If we came crash landing in there with a D or a C, we were quite happy to see that thing lifted up to a B plus because of all of these folks that made an A. But You know the problem with that? The people that made the A earned it. We didn't. But we've created a culture in which people don't have to earn a thing. And so right now in society, we had places in America during the stimulus portion where, I mean, they were giving out credit cards to people that weren't, you know, even a part of the the nation uh, as far as citizenship. But yet you couldn't get a credit card for $15,000 and spend it on this or for that. We had a nation that allowed people to receive all kinds of funds throughout the year. And they were told by law, you'd never be put out of your apartment. You'd never lose your house. Nobody can put you out. But when they came to the end of the year and the landlords were saying, could you please pay the rent? Could you please pay the house note? Multitudes of people hadn't even saved the money to pay their rent. They had spent it personally on themselves. And everybody was across the television shaming folks that were saying, you shouldn't be telling people that they ought to get out and get a job. Here's what the book says. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And the one that doesn't take care of his family is worse than an infidel. I didn't write that. That's what was in the book long before anybody in here was born. But Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will also be ashamed of them. So returning to that story, I was talking to this Nigerian girl. She said, I don't understand you Americans. Why is the suicide rate so high? Here are people born in luxury. Here are people wealthier than ancient kings, even who are impoverished. But yet in Africa, there'd be a little seven-year-old kid and his little sister wandering off through the bush to go to a school three miles away with nothing but a spear, don't even have a book, and they've got to fight off wild animals to get there. Come back home, there's not a refrigerator in there. 
Nobody has any kind of refrigeration to hold on the food. You kill what you're going to eat that day or the next day. Or you skin it, salt the meat down, preserve it the best way that you can. Hardly a stitch of clothing. And where there is clothing, you got to make it out of the skins of the animals that you kill. But yet with all of those hardships, don't have suicide amongst our tribes out there. But yet I'm telling you, right up there in Saline County, as many times I've preached in that place up there, there's hardly a six to nine month period that passes where somebody doesn't take their life. Why? Is it in this nation that suicide is so high amongst young people and we have to have so much medicine to deal with this depression? I'm telling you, we've created in the last 35, 40 years a very weak minded generation of people. They don't want we don't want them to hear words that deal with no. We don't want them to have to experience any kind of shame when there is certain shame that should be attached to certain behaviors. That is why it's in the book. You're not supposed to feel good about engaging in certain things. And when Jesus says this adulterous and sinful generation, if you think he means it as a compliment, you ought to read it again. It's not a compliment. So the scripture is clear. We then as Christians have to do everything we can to renew our minds with the word of God. To fortify ourselves so that when people come in contact with us, they're trying to tell us what is right and what is wrong. We can quote the book. You don't have to argue with Pastor Darrell. Argue with Mark. You don't have to argue with brother so-and-so. All you have to do is argue with what John says or what we have in Paul or Peter's writing. Dr. Dumbbell doesn't know everything he thinks he knows. Hold on to the scripture and believe the words of God. Here is what Jesus says also. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my words, that same characteristic will be exhibited by me when I come. Now that means that Jesus himself can be ashamed of our behavior. Ephesians talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. I hope and pray that we would not live the kinds of lives that would cause the Lord to be ashamed of how we conduct ourselves. Parents have been ashamed of children's behavior before. Not good at all. I mean, I've heard all kind of stories out here. I mean, you know, there's some things that have happened that the authorities and parents have never found out about. I remember years ago hearing about some kids that were out one day they were shooting and they just decided to see if they could shoot in a particular direction. I mean, shot a dog right in the belly. I mean, just this dog went to howling and screaming and yelling. Nobody ever knows what happened to that dog. And I'm sure if he never made it home, the owners were trying to figure out what happened, but never had any idea that one day two boys were out there shooting and John and Jeff, they sighted in on the dog. Think about it. So there's something in the past that all of us have done. Imagine the shame that is manifested when people come to know what we've done. See, think about that. The Lord said he'd be ashamed of our behavior. But then at the same time, he affirms one particular truth, and that is that he's coming. Hear me? It says when he comes, I'm telling you, folks, 
We're nearer to the coming of the Lord than we've ever been before. And if we say that tomorrow morning, it'll be just as true then as it is right now. The people in the Old Testament had no idea when the king of kings would be born in this world. But one generation after another had a prophet, a prophetess prophesied. There's an anointed person coming. And when Jesus came into this world, people were blinded to the fact that he was here. They did not want to believe that he was the Messiah, but yet that is exactly what the angels saying. And I'm telling you, folks, when he returns, it's going to be majestic, going to be majestic. He's going to come back to a world. He's going to be looking for faith. And the Bible says he hopes to be able to find it. But if he comes, will he find it in you? Will he find it in me? So when we think about shame and the culture, what are we going to do the further we go down the line and we watch as Christians are persecuted and maligned? The word Christianity has been so redefined today that there's utter confusion when you talk to people in different churches about what it means to be a Christian. The average person knows that to be Christian means to be like Christ. But the percentage of people who understand what Christ was like has diminished. So now we have in our minds images of Jesus that are contrary to the portrayals in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A Muslim's belief about Jesus is not the same as ours. The Hindu belief about Jesus is not the same as ours. A person involved with the New Age or Wicca may have some form of belief about Jesus. It's not the same as what we believe. And if we ever come to a point in our life where we reject what the Bible teaches about Christ, then my goodness, folks, when he returns, he'll be ashamed of us. I don't want the Lord to be displeased with the way that I conduct myself, even if it means I have to have some displeasure that comes from my family, or if it has to come from some neighbors. I don't want any Christian to be able to believe that this culture has so much power and authority that it's going to affect what I believe. But one day, these holy angels are going to descend with Christ. And part of the aspect of his coming is going to be a severance, the wheat and the tares. There's going to be a separation, folks. I'm telling you, the good and the bad's going to be separated. One day there's going to be somebody up on a rooftop. There's going to be somebody down in that house. One of them going to disappear. There's going to be somebody out in the field one day. And there's going to be somebody else over in the marketplace. One of them going to disappear. One day there's going to be somebody laying in the bed and there'll be somebody else wide awake. One of them getting out of here. But I do know this, when the church of Jesus Christ is united with the Son of God and he returns in the heavens, as Paul says, he said, we'll be caught away with him, so shall we ever be with the Lord. If you think there's trouble on the earth now, you pull the church out of here. Yeah, you, you'll, see, you'll see some trouble now. If, if people think their communities are restrained now because of the presence of Christians, you take all the Christians out of Thayer County, I guarantee you, Within, 30, within 36 to 48 hours, you'll see some laws passed 
that'll make it possible for people to do whatever they want. But as long as there's somebody not ashamed of Jesus and the words in the book, there'll always be an obstacle or some kind of impediment that says you can go this far, but no further. But our problem has been we haven't opened our mouth in the last 35 years because we've been so terrified over what somebody's going to say or whether or not we're going to offend somebody. Have you ever considered that you might be offending God? Yeah. I've counseled people plenty of times. They say, well, pastor, how are we supposed to respond if I'm on the job? Because I got a bunch of medical people, nurses and all this stuff. <clears throat> they say, how am I, how are we supposed to respond when they're asking about all of these cultural situations? And I tell them and our teachers and all of them this here. Well, number one, uh, we're on school grounds or we're on the hospital grounds. Here is what the protocols are for this particular institution. This is what they say. This is what I have to adhere to. So this is how I'm going to treat people. I'm going to treat people, you know, nice, regardless of what their background and how they conduct themselves and all of these other things regarding and relating to gender and all of that. And so that those are the protocols. And if I'm going to be here, I got to do that. But if you're asking me my personal opinion, I'll tell you what the book says. Now, if you don't want to hear what the book says, come to church. You can hear what we believe at the church. If you don't want to do that, then you can come to my house. I'll talk to you in my home and tell you exactly what I believe. But folks, I'm telling you, stop letting people push you into a corner where you have no options. But be strong and bold in your faith. Because this culture is strong and bold and flamboyant about what they believe. Yeah. I was in a shop while I was at home looking at some clothing, and this man came up there and wanted to sell us some stuff, and he had all these flashy colors on, and just, oh my goodness, I mean, his hair just going in every direction, just looked like been in an explosion in a mattress factory or something. And I mean, just one color here going there, and the shoes loud, and all of this kind of stuff, and he said, can I help you? I said, no, I believe, I believe uh, that gentleman over there will be helping us. You know, well, I went over there to the other gentleman. He didn't look much better except he was bald. <clears throat> and so spent, spent my time talking with him. And so he was asking me about, you know, the kind of things I like to wear. And I said, no, I can't, can't wear that color. He said, oh, that, that looked good on you, Reverend. I said, no, you don't understand. I said, I'm a pastor out in rural America. I said, I'm not some preacher in urban America that's trying to look hip. I said, I've got to be able to do funerals, perform marriages, and preach the gospel and be credible. I'm not 22 years old trying to look hip anymore. So I said, let's come on over here to this section. Well, we got to talking a little bit more about God, and I just witnessed to him and told him all about what I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks before that, Tiff and I, some friends, we were in a bookstore in uh, Omaha, and a Muslim man saw me over there in the Christian section I was reading, and I knew when he walked in, because of the hat he had on, I knew he was Muslim. And so he was just kind of looking at me out the side of his eyes, so I was looking at him outside of mine, 
And I'm just, I'm just watching. I don't know what's going on here. And so I'm pulling books down slowly and I'm reading and just looking through. And so finally he said to me, do you know anything about Jesus? I said, oh, yes, know a whole lot about Jesus. I said, yeah. I said, he was a great man. He said, well, well, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Koran talks a lot about Jesus, too. Did, did you know Jesus was a white man? I said, well, uh, no. I said, I didn't ever know what color he was. He said, well, he said his beard was white and all of this. I knew he was Nation of Islam and I knew where this was going. He's going to start off with the whole white thing and try to say that's Western civilization, but Jesus was really black and he's coming around the side. But I saw him before he ever got there to that curve to try to make it towards me. And I just said to him, does it really matter what color a man is that died on the cross for my sins? I said, why would I care if he was red, yellow, black, or white? The man died for me. He said, well, I just don't think Christianity is the only way. I said, well, how could you? You're a Muslim. I said, I'm a Christian preacher. Now, by now, he's getting loud. You know, it's half price books. People walking back and forth. They got the little signs up that say socially distanced. Only one person down there in one little section. Here we are two feet within each other. He, this close to me, he's shouting at me. I'm not going to be shouted now. I start yelling back. I said, how in the world can you be a Muslim? He said, well, what's wrong with Islam? I said, how could you serve or follow a man that was engaged to and married to an eight-year-old girl? He said, well, she had her dad's permission to marry Muhammad. I said, that makes it even worse. What kind of a dad gives up an eight-year-old girl to be married to a man? Well, it was getting quiet then, you see. But here's the point. I made sure he knew that I believed Jesus was God, that he came into this world and he died for my sins. All of that took place in less than 45 seconds. And when I stepped out of that aisle to make my way up, because Tiffany had called me and said, we're waiting for you in the car. I made my way up that aisle. I'm telling you, there were heads turning, looking like this to see who in the world that was making all that noise back over there. Folks, don't let people push you down. Do not be ashamed of your Savior and his words. He did too much for you. For you to be ashamed today. Let's stand. Well, when you think about that verse of scripture, a good thing to ask sometimes is not just how many opportunities and occasions I've missed when I could have spoken up for Jesus, but to ask this question. Did you refuse to speak up because you were afraid? Did you refuse to speak up because you didn't know? But whatever your answer is, I think we should all repent and say, God, when you give us another occasion, I'm asking you, God, to fill our mouths with wisdom so that we'll know what to say. You'll never know who will be converted by the power of the Holy Ghost If you don't use your mouth to speak the truth, it is truth that sets people free, not vagueness, not ambiguous statements, which the modern culture wants you 
to use. But it's clarity that makes sure people know the difference between what's black, what's right, and what's gray. Stand on the word, folks. Let me pray for you. Father, when we think about your word and think about the truths of Scripture, we realize that your son meant them and lived them to the point that he died. Stephen was stoned to death for what he believed. James lost his life also. So many people around the world, Lord, are still standing by these truths and the prisons are full tonight because somebody has stood by your word. Help us, O God, to stand on the, the firm foundation and to not be ashamed. And I pray, God, You'd fill our hearts with boldness and give us the wisdom to speak your word. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. amen.